Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Bioethical Issues in the COVID-19 Pandemic, the Development and Distribution of Vaccines. Jennifer Paul Cohen, a member of the City Bar's Bioethical Issues Committee, interviews two experts on ethical issues relating to vaccines for COVID-19. Alan Brudner, chair of the Bioethical Issues Committee, introduces the speakers and the conversations. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Here's Alan Brudner. Welcome and thank you for joining the Bioethical Issues Committee of the New York City Bar Association for our second podcast addressing public health and bioethical issues that are of particular relevance during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Alan Brudner. I am chair of the committee. In our first podcast in May, we talked about ethical issues in the allocation of scarce medical resources in the pandemic. In this podcast, we are going to discuss the ethical issues surrounding a critical public health priority that is very much on everyone's mind right now, vaccines. A member of our committee, Jennifer Paul Cohen, will interview two distinguished speakers in bioethics and public health, Dr. James Colgrove and Dr. Lou Keltner. It is my pleasure to introduce this podcast, and I will introduce each of our guests before they speak with us. Our committee member who will lead the discussions, Jennifer Paul Cohen, is herself a highly qualified bioethicist. Jennifer has a master's degree from the Columbia University Bioethics Program and currently serves on the Ethics Committee at Greenwich Hospital in Connecticut. Jennifer has taught classes in the Columbia Master's Program in research ethics, ethics and the pharmaceutical industry, and religion and bioethics, and has also taught classes at the University of Connecticut on the ethics of surrogacy and assisted reproductive technologies. Jennifer is a graduate of Brown University, and she also holds a law degree from St. John's University School of Law, as well as a master's in religion from Yale Divinity School. Jennifer's first interviewee today will be Dr. James Colgrove. Dr. Colgrove is a professor of sociomedical science at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and is dean of the post-baccalaureate pre-medical program at the Columbia School of General Studies. His areas of expertise include ethics, health law, history of public health, immunization, and infectious disease. Dr. Colgrove's work and research focus on the relationship between individual well-being and the social, political, and legal processes through which public health policies have been mediated in American history. He has many published books as well as articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, American Journal of Public Health, Health Affairs, Science, Bulletin of the History of Medicine, and the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. Some of Dr. Colgrove's books from a few years ago sound as if they could have been ripped from today's headlines. To name just two, Epidemic City, The Politics of Public Health in New York, published in 2011 by the Russell Sage Foundation, and State of Immunity, The Politics of Vaccination in 20th Century America, published by the University of California Press in 2006. Dr. Colgrove received his PhD from Columbia University, his master's in public health from Columbia, his MA from San Francisco State University, and his bachelor's from the University of California at Davis. 
Dr. Colgrove will talk about vaccines in a historical context, particularly as a public health measure in the face of pandemics. He will also discuss some of the ethical issues relating to their development, testing, and distribution, and some cultural issues, including what seems like a race between countries to be the first to develop a vaccine. With that, I will hand this over to Jennifer Paul Cohen and our first guest, Dr. James Colgrove. Jennifer? Thank you, Alan. Professor James Colgrove, thank you for sharing your expertise and opinions on the historical aspects of the search for a COVID-19 vaccine. You're a public health expert and historian and a bioethics professor, and you've studied the various bioethical issues raised by mass vaccination programs. But I'd like to start with a basic question. Why hasn't bioethics looked closely at vaccination and public health issues in general? Thank you very much for the chance to speak with you, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. Uh, In the last 10 or 15 years or so, a, a very robust literature has emerged on many aspects of vaccination. And in fact, this has been a quite fertile area of inquiry. Um, But bioethics as a field did come somewhat late to the subject of immunization and to public health issues more generally. At the time bioethics emerged as a formal professional identity in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, infectious diseases were just not really a major topic of interest in the medical profession. Um, And the first generation of bioethicists were much more interested in things like the ethics of newly emerging advanced medical technologies, things like organ transplantation and artificial respiration that could sustain life and the definition of death. Those issues were much more emergent and seemed uh, much more pressing and much more like the future of medicine than infectious diseases. This was a moment when we really thought we were done with infectious diseases. Uh, So for that reason, I think early bioethics didn't pay much attention uh, to to vaccines or public health because uh, the, the problem of infectious diseases just wasn't seen as a priority. A major turning point was the emergence of AIDS in the 1980s, which really led to an interest in infectious diseases. Um, It was a wake-up call to remind everybody that uh, we hadn't conquered infectious diseases and that they were still a problem. Um, And it was around that time that you started to see a number of scholars looking closely at uh, issues that we now think of as public health ethics. So these are things like uh, the ethics of quarantine and the ethics of contact tracing, uh, topics that are are very relevant right now in our current moment, obviously, uh, questions uh, that that basically revolve around the relationship between the individual and the collective. Bioethical interest in immunization, I think, really took off in the early 2000s with the rise of the contemporary anti-vaccination movement. Um, And so bioethicists around that time started to look at things like the ethics of mandates and how do you balance vaccine risks and benefits and compensating vaccine-related harms. And and since that time, over the last two decades, um, I think uh, the ethics of of vaccines has has produced a a very, very uh, robust and, and interesting literature. 
Fascinating. Before we turn to vaccines, are there historical precedents for the behavioral changes that we are facing today, the mask wearing, the social distancing, the shutdown of restaurants, schools, sports, and public life? Mm-hmm. Yes, there are many historical precedents to this, uh, to these uh, interventions. Uh, throughout the 19th century, when public health emerged as a field, uh, deadly epidemics were recurring uh, events for communities around the country. And so communities often found themselves uh, uh, forced to consider things like quarantines. Um, It's been many decades since we've had to uh, consider measures like this. Really, the last time measures like this were considered on a wide scale was about a century ago in the great 1918-19 flu pandemic. Um, when cities, uh, states, and the entire country grappled with many of the same issues that we're grappling with uh, now. Um, and, you know, the ethical issues related to these have been, have been remarkably uh, consistent uh, over, over time. Uh, questions of uh, balancing the, uh, the costs of controlling disease uh, with the necessity and the benefits. Okay, let's turn to vaccines. Many people have compared the current race to find a COVID-19 vaccine to the race for the polio vaccine in the middle of the last century. Is that a useful comparison? Um, There are similarities and there are are differences. you know, uh, polio was uh, an endemic disease that had been with the country uh, for uh, for a very long time. Um, it uh, had uh, a relatively low uh, fatality rate, but it was a very feared uh, disease. Um, COVID obviously is an emergent disease that is is much more of a public health uh, crisis. Both of these diseases were were very much uh, perceived as matters of of um, of some urgency, um, and there was a great deal of of uh, uh, public demand for a vaccine. Um, so there, I think there are uh, are are similarities. Um, you know, we're in a very different place politically, a very different place uh, scientifically. So I think the, uh, the, the, any lessons learned from the history of polio should be treated with caution. Mm-hmm. A fundraising for the polio vaccine was done through the March of Dimes, mm-hmm. you know, a grassroots effort that was raising money literally one dime at a time. Today, that's not the way the vaccine research is being funded. Do you see any ethical ramification to today's race for a COVID vaccine, which is essentially a public private partnership between governmental agencies and big pharma? Mm-hmm. Well, vaccine uh, development over the last several decades has typically been a public-private partnership in which the government has worked uh, with uh, with pharmaceutical companies. Um, that's not really new. I think the ethical concerns that have been raised around uh, Operation Warp Speed and the, the urgency of this is the concern that uh, any kind of modification to traditional uh, clinical trials design is going to raise, uh, increase the risk of, of harm to research participants and, and possibly to people who receive uh, the vaccine uh, uh, once it is, uh, is licensed. Um, 
Anytime you modify a trial design uh, to shorten the timeline, for example, by uh, either skipping animal safety trials and going directly into human trials or, or doing them concurrently, um, running phase one and phase two trials simultaneously instead of sequentially, um, as uh, has been done uh, in at least one of the trials that I'm familiar with. Anytime you do that, you run at least in theory, the risk of increasing harm to study participants um, and uh, then to the people who receive the vaccine once it's licensed if the trial has failed to detect rare uh, adverse events. Um, so I think that's um, uh, something that's, uh, that is new and potentially concerning about the, the um, push to develop a COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. Jonas Salk um, became a national hero for discovering the polio vaccine, and the cultural memory is of a lone researcher working tirelessly, not associated with any private pharma company, inoculating his own children before the vaccine was widely available, and then famously replying that he would not patent the vaccine. So that's quite a contrast with the race being conducted now by primarily private pharmaceutical companies employing some of the methods that you were describing in your previous answer. I, I guess I would say, you know, the, the Salk developed his vaccine kind of on a, at, a, at a cusp of a historical transition. It was the end of the era of the lone scientist working in his lab and the beginning of the era of modern pharma. And so the model of the lone scientist experimenting on his children um, without um, operating under the aegis of a, of a large profit-seeking pharmaceutical company, that was, uh, that was coming to an end in the 1950s. Um, and a new model for vaccine development was beginning, and, and we are very much in uh, a different era um, than the era in which Salk was operating. The other, the other thing I would say about the public memory of the, of the Salk polio vaccine, you know, it's, it's remembered today as mostly a story of triumph, which mm. it certainly was. Um, but I think we've also forgotten um, that there were uh, a number of, of problems along the way, um, particularly once the vaccine uh, was licensed, problems around uh, the rollout and the distribution of the vaccine. Um, one thing that is less well remembered today is that the Department of uh, Health, Education and Welfare, which is the precursor to today's Health and Human Services, was very widely criticized uh, for basically bungling the rollout of the vaccine and for not anticipating uh, the enormous public demand. Um, there, were, uh, there were shortages, there was no coherent plan nationwide for prioritizing the vaccine. Um, there were concerns that people who were wealthy or politically connected were jumping the queue so that they could get their children vaccinated before any other children. All sorts of problems that were basically blamed on the fact that, that the federal government um, had been very hands-off, had not um, taken a leading role and had not taken its responsibility for assuring the equitable distribution of the vaccine once it was licensed. Um, and, you know, so I think there's a very 
um, important uh, lesson there if you if you want to try to draw lessons from the history for uh, today this is um, a national issue and we need uh, we need leadership at the federal level I mean certainly the fact that the current White House is such a putrid sewer of stupidity, incompetence, and corruption has a lot to do with why the epidemic looks the way it does. Uh, and so um, I think one, one lesson that, less, that is less well-remembered from the salt polio vaccine uh, is the importance of federal leadership. Now, President Eisenhower had signed the Poliomyelitis Vaccination Assistance Act into law, and did that give the government a more of an active role in the funding and dissemination of the vaccine? It did. That was a very important milestone that marked really uh, one of the very first times that the federal government recognized uh, a role in assuring uh, that vaccines would be accessible to all people um, and that act established a kind of template or precedent that would subsequently be reinforced uh, through the first vaccination assistance act in 1962 and then a variety of, of pieces of federal legislation since then so that uh, uh, eisenhower's active leadership in that instance was a was a very important precedent since the mid 20th century the number of vaccines that children receive has greatly increased from just a handful of vaccines for deadly diseases to over 32 recommended vaccines for some milder diseases such as chickenpox has that increase in vaccines changed the way we think of contagious diseases and perhaps the way we think of the scientific community's responsibility to protect us from contagious disease Absolutely. I think the proliferation of vaccines has prompted a lot of discussion among uh, ethicists and public health policymakers and physicians uh, about a whole variety of issues related to vaccine development and distribution. Um, so uh, it raises questions, for example, about our system of vaccine delivery. Um, logistically, how do you enable kids to receive so many shots during the first months and years of life during their clinical visits? Um, it raises questions about payment. Um, what is the effect of having so many vaccines on uh, public payment systems like the Vaccines for Children program uh, and, and private payers? Uh, it raises questions about uh, mandates and the use of school vaccination laws. Have we reached the upper limit of the number of diseases that we can feasibly require kids to be vaccinated for? particularly if you're talking now about diseases, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, usually aren't life-threatening, uh, like chickenpox, or diseases that don't spread through casual airborne contact, uh, like HPV. And then just in terms of, of the broader landscape of infectious diseases, uh, we're, we're faced with questions about which diseases should we target for vaccine development? What combination of, of prevalence and severity should we be looking at? What is What are the burdens of different diseases so that we can uh, rationalize and, and prioritize our, our choices of, of diseases to target with vaccine development? 
As you've shown in your book, State of Immunity, the Politics of Vaccination in 20th Century America, vaccination has progressed from being a private individual choice to a medical intervention that has the power of the state behind it, primarily, as you've mentioned, in the requirement that children be vaccinated prior to school. COVID is a disease that primarily affects older people. Should a COVID vaccine be mandated? And if yes, how might that work? It's a great question and certainly a question that's on many people's minds right now. Uh, So one thing I think it's important to remember is is what we're talking about when we say mandate. Uh, So no one is, is forcibly vaccinated against their will. That's not what mandatory vaccination means. Uh, Mandatory vaccination simply means that certain rights and privileges are made contingent on receiving the vaccine. Um, In this country, the primary one is is, uh, education, going to school, either public or private school. Um, It's very easy to imagine uh, that mandates might be enacted uh, requiring kids to be vaccinated against COVID as a condition of attending K through 12 or colleges. Um, And I think such mandates would be ethically justified on several grounds, uh, the same grounds on which other um, uh, vaccines are mandated as a condition of school entry. Mill's harm principle, uh, ideas of non-maleficence, social compact theory, a whole variety of justifications. Having said that, there are a few things that we need to consider about a COVID vaccine mandate. First, the principle of least restriction would indicate that we should enact mandates only if it appears that other less compulsory measures have not uh, proven effective. So the principle of least restriction says that you should uh, use whatever public health policy accomplishes your goals with the least amount of of restriction. Um, So uh, I think we need to see if and when a vaccine is licensed, what's the level of public uptake that we can achieve through voluntary means. Um, And then if, if it appears that for example, we continue to see outbreaks in schools or it appears that, that children are, are simply not um, being vaccinated in, in sufficiently high numbers, then we might um, consider a mandate. The other concern about mandating a vaccine uh, is the idea of, of enacting a mandate very soon after licensure. And uh, there are a couple of reasons to be concerned about that. Um, one is that you want to be absolutely certain of the the maximum amount of safety of a vaccine before enacting any mandate. And uh, you want to make sure that post-licensure safety monitoring shows that there aren't, you know, serious rare adverse events that were not uncovered um, in uh, during clinical trials. The other concern is is more of a of a political one, and that is that you need to have public support and acceptance for a mandate, and uh, and you need to give people time to understand the rationale. Um, this was a big issue back in 2006 after the HPV vaccine was licensed, and uh, very quickly states started to push for mandates, and, and they the whole effort sort of blew up in their face because a lot of people said, 
I've never heard of this vaccine, and all of a sudden you're telling me that it's lice, it's it's going to be um, mandatory. We're not in really a, a, an analogous situation with COVID because I think everybody will will know that a COVID vaccine is is on its way before it's licensed, and and many people will will be eagerly awaiting it. Um, but I do think that there's there's there are political considerations uh, in terms of giving people time to become used to a mandate. So uh, I think ethically and, and certainly politically, um, we want to see what kind of uptake we are able to achieve through voluntary measures uh, before we enact uh, a COVID vaccine mandate. Um, but should we should we come to that point? I, I do think that a, a, a a mandate uh, requiring people to be vaccinated, for example, before attending uh, schools or colleges would be ethically justified. Building on that answer, a recent Gallup poll showed that one out of three Americans say they would not get vaccinated for COVID, even if the vaccine were FDA approved and free. Do you have any insights based on the historical record of why that might be the case? Does the speed of vaccine development throw fuel on the fire of anti-vax movements that got going around the turn of the 21st century? Uh, well, I guess one thing I would say is I, I think at this point, any polling data on the acceptability of a vaccine should be treated with caution. Um, many things will influence the acceptance of the vaccine uh, once it's licensed, you know, how the safety and efficacy are, are communicated and, and how effective uh, the government and, and public health and medical spokespeople are at, at conveying the need for it. Um, but uh, anti-vaccination rhetoric and, and vaccine misinformation is absolutely a concern. Um, you know, the interesting thing about public beliefs and attitudes are about vaccination. The, the polling consistently shows that um, by, by very wide majorities, there is overwhelming support both for, uh, for immunization in general um, and even for school vaccination laws. And I think that that fact often gets overlooked because the anti-vaccination movement makes so much noise and is able to call so much attention to itself that they, they give the impression uh, of, of having views that are much more widespread than they actually are. So I think it's, you know, it's important to remember that, that public support for vaccines overall remains pretty strong. And then the concern uh, among many people is that that support may be uh, wide, but not perhaps very deep. <laughs> um, and that support may be uh, fragile and, and, and subject to erosion. Um, and certainly the, the kind of the constant drumbeat of anti-vaccination rhetoric and vaccine misinformation that gets spread uh, on social media um, is a concern. Um, you know, the, the phenomenon of vaccine hesitancy represents a very a broad spectrum of beliefs. So the, the hardcore anti-vaccination activists, the people who march in the streets and show up at legislative hearings and, and post misinformation on social media, that represents only a small portion of the vaccine hesitant pop population. Um, the problem is that their rhetoric migrates from the fringes uh, into the mainstream, and, and the concern is that they will sow doubt among people who 
who basically trust vaccines, but who may be on the fence about getting a COVID vaccine or, or may have some, uh, some question. Let me return to um, a topic you raised when we discussed polio, that there were some people who suffered some harm from the vaccine. Um, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act of 2005 allows manufacturers of vaccines and drugs to be held harmless from liability for harm if those vaccines and drugs are developed in response to a health emergency such as a pandemic. There's a national vaccine injury compensation program created in the 1980s set up to reimburse on a no-fault basis those who are harmed from vaccinations. Do you anticipate a secondary fund being created or do you think that fund will be sufficient to deal with harm resulting from the COVID vaccine should there be harm? Um, you know, injury compensation programs have been around since the 1960s. Um, the U.S. got its injury compensation program in the 1980s, as you said, and uh, they're justified on the ground that immunization is something that people undergo, at least in part, for other members of society, and therefore society has a reciprocal duty to care for a small number of people who may be harmed by a vaccine. Um, and so those... those um, those programs, I think, are, are a really critical part of, of any overall vaccine inf infrastructure. I actually haven't, I haven't read about the possibility that a, a separate fund will be created. I mean, there are, there is a precedent for that um, during the swine flu pandemic of, of uh, 1976, or the, I should say the, the pandemic that didn't happen, the feared swine flu pandemic, a, a fund was created. Um, and um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Okay. The success of vaccine campaigns in the 20th century bolstered the narrative that the U.S. was the leader in scientific and medical breakthroughs. Do you think that type of nationalistic pride is still in play, or is this more of a global search? Um, I think in, in, in today's world, any, any uh, search for a vaccine has to involve uh, cooperation uh, among scientists uh, around the world. And you know, there are interesting debates about the, the obligations to share proprietary scientific data and the, the, the need to do that for, for the good of, of everyone. Um, we have seen examples historically of, of international cooperation. Um, you talked about the polio vaccine. Um, the, after the salt polio vaccine was licensed, the Sabin vaccine uh, uh, was uh, trialed um, through mass testing in the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War, for example. Um, so the idea of, of, uh, of the U.S. as a lone player, I think, has always been somewhat of a, of a myth. Um, infectious diseases have never respected national boundaries, and so I think the need for global cooperation is really critical. As you mentioned, the success of vaccination depends on a type of social contract. Uh, historically, children have really borne the burden of that contract. Now we would be asking adults to bear that burden. Do you think that's a harder cultural lift? Uh, possibly, although I'm not sure that the fact that it's adults rather than children is going to be the main uh, barrier here. I think some of the other um, current 
uh, attitudes and beliefs around science and uh, collective action, I think may be more of a barrier than the fact that we're talking about adults uh, rather than children. Uh, I think, for example, of the kind of uh, radical libertarianism that has resulted in widespread uh, rejection of face coverings. Um, I think of uh, the kind of uh, distrust of science and medicine that characterizes what some people have, have called the, the post-truth era. Um, I think those factors uh, are, are more concerning and, and pose a greater threat to widespread acceptance of a COVID vaccine than the fact that, that this is for, for adults rather than for children. Professor Colgrove, thank you for your fascinating insights and an enlightening conversation. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Our next interviewee today will be Dr. Lou Keltner. Dr. Keltner has a 30-year career in biopharma, drug, and business development. He is Chief Executive Officer of Epistat, an international healthcare strategy company that he founded in 1972. Dr. Keltner is also an Associate Professor at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine and a guest lecturer and director in the Columbia University Bioethics Program. He is currently a member of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, American Medical Association, International Association of Tumor Marker Oncology, American Association of Clinical Chemistry, and Drug Information Association. Dr. Keltner received a Master of Science degree in Epidemiology and Biostatistics, a PhD in Biomedical Informatics, and an MD degree, all from Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. In our podcast today, Jennifer will talk to Dr. Keltner about the development of vaccines, some of the science behind them, ethical issues relating to clinical trials of vaccines and how they are conducted, including challenge trials where volunteers agree to be infected in order to help the scientists evaluate the results and the regulatory framework in which this all occurs. Dr. Keltner brings to us the rare perspective of a professional who has been involved for many years in both academia and as a corporate executive in the healthcare industry. I will now turn this podcast back over to Jennifer Paul Cohen and our second guest, Dr. Lou Keltner. Dr. Lou Keltner, welcome and thank you for sharing your expertise on the ethical issues surrounding the manufacturing and development of a COVID vaccine. The FDA is now very much in the public eye, especially one of its divisions, the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research, which will be approving a COVID vaccine. Vaccines are biologics. What is a biologic and how does it differ from a conventional drug? So in general, biologics are defined as peptides or proteins. Uh, compounds, they're molecules that uh, are more traditionally manufactured from biological sources rather than chemical sources. There are gray areas, of course, but in general, biologics are molecules that are uh, derived from or like molecules from living things as opposed to uh, chemical structures, which again, may be naturally occurring, but can be uh, synthesized or, or derived just as chemical compounds. 
It's well known that the pharmaceutical and biotech industry have a very high fail rate. Most drugs and vaccines in development do not get FDA approval. Is the confidence that the pharma industry, government, and public have that a vaccine will be quickly and successfully developed justified by the science? No, I don't think so. Um, I believe that the industry will, in fact, develop an effective vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. It's an unusual virus. Uh, it requires an approach for human immunity that's pretty different. The, the coronaviruses do because of the way they interact with the human being. Um, but yes, I'm quite confident there will be effective vaccines developed that will work and they will, um, the first generation good ones that have gone through appropriate clinical trials and study will work for some time. This is not a virus or class of viruses that mutates in ways that allow it, like HIV, that allow it to evade the immune system easily. So yes, I'm confident there will be a vaccine, but vaccine development that yields correct vaccines is not fast. It's not fast because there's a lot required. And testing, of course, since we're not looking at a sick patient and trying to see if a drug makes that patient better. We're looking at healthy people and trying to find out if a vaccine can protect them from getting sick. That requires a lot of people. It requires a lot of time. The side effects are very difficult to predict. They're very difficult to monitor. And so it takes time. Vaccine development, logically, scientifically, to use the scientific process correctly, namely asking us to asking questions that we expect no answers to. Um, you know, the, the, the negative answer is what we're looking for in, in, in scientific research. It takes time. And I, so, no, I do not believe vaccine development and the science uh, behind correct vaccine development allows us to believe that we'll have a vaccine quickly. The public is hearing a lot about genetic models for the COVID vaccine, a DNA or messenger RNA model. With your long experience in the field of cancer immunotherapy, can you comment on the advantages to such a model? And are there any ethical differences to the various vaccine models? For example, do the DNA vaccines interact with a person's genome in any way? So in the first question, you know, experience in, in cancer immunotherapy, DNA and RNA or mRNA vaccines and therapeutics have a bleak history. Now, many new approaches to disease, especially in cancer, have bleak histories until they work. And certainly cancer immunotherapy had a pretty bleak history until it worked. And so it, it takes a long time to do science and to, and to ask a lot of the negative questions that have to be asked to get to the right spot. So DNA and mRNA vaccines are a new approach to vaccines. They have not been successful. There are not approved vaccines that use DNA or mRNA for anything um, in infectious diseases or, or cancer. And so we're still learning. I, I don't in any way believe that they'll never work. I think they can, but there are a lot of ifs. A DNA or an mRNA vaccine, the material that's injected into the person has to go through a lot of steps in order to yield immunity. That's quite different than an old-style polio vaccine. If we give somebody an inactivated polio vaccine, the human immune system responds to it, builds antibodies right to that inactivated virus, and it works or it doesn't. Um, that's not the case with DNA or mRNA vaccines, uh, no matter how they're built. There's a lot of things that have to happen in the body for them to work right. They've got to get to the right place. 
they've got to be read. The, you know, those those code sequences have to be read. They've got to produce the right uh, protein or or compound. That compound then has to interact with the immune system in the right way. The immune system has to interact in the right way, um, and there are no no unknown safety issues that that uh, come up in the meantime. So it's it's much more complex, and we don't know. We're we're, we're early in it. I think eventually there may be some really great things that come from DNA or, or RNA vaccines, but we're not there yet. Okay. And the second question, do yes. they interact with a person's genome in any way? They possibly could, um, but again, we don't really know. Mm. And there are some folks who say there's evidence in preclinical and clinical work that yes, they may, they may interact. Uh, the human genome is, as we learn more and more, because of viral interaction. I mean, we've learned in the last few years that probably the majority, the majority of the human genome is, in fact, retroviral remnant. It, it doesn't come from mammals. It comes from retroviruses. So can DNA or RNA sequences that come from viral uh, constituents interact with the human genome? The answer is resoundingly yes. For these specific vaccines, we don't know yet. But it's That's certainly it. possible. It's absolutely possible. Do you know if, the, if um, human fetal cell lines are being used for COVID vaccine research, and do you anticipate that posing an ethical challenge as vaccine research goes forward? And again, then you're reaching into a technical level of, of the actual vaccine research that's beyond me. And so, I, no, I do not know the answer to that question. Um, I don't believe it would pose any problems. You know, human fetal cell line cultures have been used in research globally for a long time. Um, there are not huge ethical problems uh, as long as, as all the information is available, the sources and uh, are, are effectively informed. Um, you know, there are no experimentation done that has nothing to do with the, with the uh, development of the, of the drug or the vaccine. So, no, I don't believe they would pose ethical problems, but I can't tell you that, that they're being used. Let's turn to Operation Warp Speed, which is the code name the federal government has given to the vaccine initiative. The federal government has as its goal the production of 300 million doses of a vaccine that will most likely require two doses by January 2021. What are the ethics of compressing a process that normally takes 10 to 15 years of research and testing into one year? How can a timeline this compressed guarantee safety and efficacy? It can't. And it certainly can't guarantee safety. It cannot guarantee safety because we don't know. We're messing with the human immune system. We're asking the human immune system to respond to a foreign material, a complex foreign material, namely a virus. And so when we do things to the human immune system to get it to do that, it takes a long time to figure out whether there may be other untoward effects. Certainly in vaccine development and research over the decades, there have been vaccines which have been developed and which have had surprising side effects. Not the majority of them, but it's happened. And the immune system is very complex. We know so little about the immune, human immune system. We're learning, and we've learned a huge amount from oncology and immune oncology, but we still don't know. And so the safety issues, it is not, in my opinion, in the opinion I believe, in the written opinion of many, many good vaccine development experts, it is not possible to compress that safety part um, into something that would yield us a, a vaccine for anyone 
by January 2021, with the possible exception if we have a vaccine where there is very clear efficacy data from a really well-designed study, and there are, there are groups of extremely high-risk people um, where we're not as worried about safety, just like we're not as worried about safety in cancer therapeutics, possibly, possibly for those people, if we have a vaccine where we really, really have good efficacy data. Um, okay, sure, I think you can compress it a bit, swallow hard, take the risk. Um, for really high-risk people who have a much higher likelihood of, of getting infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 and, and having serious disease, that's possible. The efficacy issue, um, again, I think there are some ways to compress it. I think, frankly, Dr. Fauci's done a really good job of explaining to the public sometimes um, how we can compress some of the efficacy issues. Others have, have explained it fairly well. But again, there are lots of very serious vaccine development experts who spent their careers developing vaccines who don't believe that's the case. They believe that uh, you know, the efficacy issues, sure, you can compress clinical trial recruitment. You can get more people into the trial faster than we usually do. Um, can you, in fact, run them through the process of doing the testing and finding out if there's an immune response and if it's adequate? That's tough, especially since scientifically we know that these coronaviruses don't interact with the human immune system in a way that develops uh, resistance to them in the way that most classes of viruses do. Uh, the antibody response may not be. There are those who really challenge whether an antibody response to this virus is material in human long-term immunity or not. It may be entirely a T-cell response that actually provides protection. There, there is, I think, more and more emerging data that that's the case. If that's the case, then the normal ways we evaluate vaccines, which are based mainly on antibody response, not T-cell response, um, aren't going to yield us a vaccine that really causes long-term immunity to this particular coronavirus. Fascinating. The massive scale of Operation Warp Speed has resulted in pharma developing its manufacturing and distribution supply capacities in tandem with the development of the viable vaccine. Has this happened before? Not certainly not to the kind of scale we're we're looking at. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's fine because clearly manufacturing is a big deal. And when you're manufacturing a, you know, you talked about biologicals at first versus chemical drugs. When you're manufacturing a synthetic chemical drug, ramping up manufacturing is a fairly straightforward process unless the compound is really really difficult to manufacture. Manufacturing a biological, like a monoclonal antibody or a peptide, is much more difficult. But we have processes. There's been such a huge amount of work done to be able to do that, that that's fine. With many of these vaccines, we're talking about manufacturing viruses. We're talking about those viruses being heavily genetically engineered. So now we're talking about manufacturing really big stuff that's really complicated and has all kinds of proteins and peptides and nucleic acids and uh, complex structure. And so, gee whiz, ramping up that manufacturing is tough. And so trying to do it in parallel, I think it makes great sense. But then we're taking bets on and the companies and the government and the, you know, the, the taxpayers taking bets on, well, is it worth manufacturing 
tens or hundreds of millions of doses of this vaccine before we really do know that there's any efficacy. Um, that's a bet, and the government has been willing to take the bet. The, the taxpayer is is implicitly, you know, through its its connection with the government, making the bet that we'll go ahead and do this in parallel. I, I don't think it's a bad idea. It's just that. Um, as you said earlier, most things fail. Most of these vaccine candidates that are in clinical trials, that are where the manufacturing is being ramped up under warp speed, most of them are going to fail. The money will will not be totally wasted because, yeah, we'll learn some things from ramping up vaccine manufacture on, for different kinds of vaccines. But most of the money will be wasted because most of these things won't work. There are an estimated 250 teams working on a COVID vaccine. The major pharma players have all represented that no aspect of their vaccine development will involve raw materials or drug substances from China. Does that matter? Is that a wise policy? I don't think it's necessarily a wise policy or not. I think that folks have to um, have to do the vaccine development and, and manufacturing in the best way possible. And in some cases, there are probably sources of, of research materials um, or production materials where those substances would be reliable and more easily obtainable from China. So, no, I think it's just a political policy. Um, I'm not advocating that it won't work to use non-Chinese materials, but I don't think there's some imminent danger in using raw materials and drug substances from China, to, to be honest, it's just it, this is this is a totally political issue, and I don't know whether it will impede development. But again, the development of of these materials, the production of clinical trial materials, and finally the production of commercial materials, it requires a lot of stuff. So we're not talking about a couple of things. You know, we're talking about thousands of raw materials. Right? This is complicated. So, you know, you, you, if you're going to do this fast, you've got to go to the sources that you know are reliable and that have the stuff. And in many cases, that could be China. Let's return to some of the issues you raised about clinical trials. Historically, vaccine trials recruit and enroll huge numbers of participants, much larger than drug trials. There have been representations that clinical trials will involve 30,000 participants. Is that the usual number and is that enough? I think the, the folks that um, have set those kinds of numbers are sharp, and yes, I think this is reasonably time-tested. Um, again, it's a different virus, it's a different family of viruses than we're used to building vaccines for. Um, my personal opinion, and again, you'd really have to work with statisticians who have actually an understanding of the biology of the virus and of uh, resistance to the virus, you know, human immune response to it, to say whether it's enough. Oh, but guess what? We don't yet know how the human being fully responds immunologically to this virus. We don't. People are doing work. People have theories. People have hypotheses. Some of the hypotheses are being tested well, but we don't know yet. This whole issue about antibodies, you know, which come from B cells versus T cell, cellular responses, that could be absolutely critical with any vaccine built here, and we don't fully understand it yet. So calculating how many participants have to be in a clinical trial is a little tough when you don't actually understand the mechanism 
of human immune response to a specific virus. Let's talk about possible difficulties in recruiting large numbers of participants. Should recruitment only take place in hotspots? Morally, can we tell participants to try and get infected and if they become sick, not to take a therapeutic? Do we have an ethical responsibility to tell people to continue masking, hand washing, and social distancing, even once enrolled? Yeah, look, this is one of the toughest ethical uh, problems, you know, challenge trials. And you know, in the industry, we've been debating challenge trials for decades. And challenge trials, of course, uh, have a nasty history. Uh, you could argue that Tuskegee were the Tuskegee experiences were challenge trials sometimes on people who weren't informed that they were being enrolled in challenge trials and worse and so um, it's got a colored history and your, your question is uh, is very important you know can morally can we tell participants to try to get infected uh, then it depends on the physiology of the disease and the natural history of the disease if in fact we're recruiting participants who we know are reasonably low risk um, and who have a very, very small likelihood of developing a serious infection that we can't treat, uh, then I would say yes, because this is a huge public health problem and hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions or maybe hundreds of millions of people are going to die from, from this virus. And so, you know, we're, you know, we're making this, this, sort of Machiavellian bargain here. Uh, so I think morally we can if it's done exactly right. One of the problems is you normally would do that when you have a therapeutic <laughs> on hand. So if somebody does get infected and get sick, you can treat them. Guess what? We don't. We've got therapeutics that are in trials. We've got some evidence some therapeutics work fairly well. But we don't have whiz-bang therapeutics for this virus that we know, oh, if somebody gets infected, that's okay. We know they're infected. We can monitor the human immune response to it. But, you know, the vaccine didn't work. They got infected anyway. They're getting sick. We can, that's okay. We can treat them. Guess what? We're not there. You've mentioned challenge studies. That might be a type of trial people aren't familiar with. What are the advantages of a challenge study and the mechanics of how they work as compared to a randomized controlled study, which is still the gold standard? Yeah, I mean, it gets a little bit complex. Um, but basically, you know, you've asked the question. You know, we're, we're asking participants to uh, get infected. And in a normal challenge study, you know, we have a very reliable method of, of infecting people. And so we infect people with a, a with an organism and then we do what we're going to do or we do what we've already done namely we give them a vaccine and then we try to infect them and we have a you know we've but we still can be randomized but then there's the real ethical challenge so we've randomized people and we've recruited people in the trial we've randomized them into a into a control and a treatment group the treatment group we give the vaccine the control group we give a dummy vaccine which Nobody knows, the person administering it, the doc, the patient, no one knows um, who got the dummy vaccine. And, um, and then we follow and find out how many people actually get infected uh, or, or the infection takes or disease is, is produced uh, in the group that we've treated with the vaccine versus the group that we've treated with the, with the placebo vaccine. And, and then we gather those data. So you know, the right way to do a challenge trial is you do it as a randomized control trial. 
Okay, let's move to the FDA approval process. In June of 2020, the FDA put out guidance to companies regarding the data they'll be looking for to approve a COVID vaccine. The FDA's guidance states that the vaccine must meet a 50% effective threshold, and Dr. Fauci and Francis Collins at the NIH have echoed that the 50% effective standard is acceptable. As a layperson, a 50-50 shot does not sound that comforting. Is that enough? Again, since we don't know exactly how this virus interacts with the human immune system, we don't know whether it's enough. And again, I think Francis Collins, Fauci, the people that report to them, the people that, that they, they work around are, are quite smart. And uh, I think statistically, they're kind of looking at a lower bound of what could we get away with. And it's possible that we get uh, close enough to a herd immunity with the 50% effective vaccine, assuming, that, and again, you have to be careful, 50% effective threshold works if pretty much everybody takes it, right? <laughs> if, if half the people take it and it's 50% effective, that's not enough, right? So right. we're making the assumption that everybody takes the vaccine for the 50% to be meaningful. But let's say we can get everybody to take the, essentially everybody to take the vaccine, it is 50% effective, then, you know, again, there's some emerging data saying that there may be a fair number of people in the population who are immune, probably because of T-cell immunity. And so do we then hit the probably around 72% threshold for herd immunity that begins to drop the person-to-person, uh, -person, you know, transmission number below one? In other words, every person that has a case is transmitting to less than one person that has a case, which means that the, the incidence of the disease begins dropping and on a community basis, you, you hit zero, um, community by community. So uh, sorry about the long answer. That's a bit of a complex question. Yeah, I think the 50% standard may be acceptable, but we don't know. And that does make the assumption that everybody takes it, which you and I both know isn't gonna happen especially given the political context of how this has all been thrown around. The FDA under Section 564 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act has the ability to approve a vaccine's use under emergency use authorization. Can you explain what that is as compared to approval under compassionate use, or as it's sometimes called, expanded access? And at which phase would an emergency use authorization kick in? Right, and again, the, I think it's a fairly clear term. So the FDA does have the uh, ability to um, do an emergency use authorization. Uh, you know, the, the, all the requirements are complex, but in general, it's emergency use authorization. The FDA is saying we don't have full data. We're not approving this for marketing in the way we normally do if it's a drug through uh, a, you know, a new drug application. Uh, for marketing. We're proving it for emergency use because there is a public health emergency um, and it needs to get out there. You know, that, that's the bottom line. So as we know, the FDA did an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. It then re re withdrew that emergency use authorization because it was found with data that in fact hydroxychloroquine does not uh, work in, in this disease. And the FDA has done emergency use authorization for diagnostic tests now. Um, and uh, for uh, remdesivir, for the antiviral, and may for other things. And so for it to do so for a vaccine, it's not that different. So it's saying that, that the FDA uh, knows that there's a public health emergency, knows that there is 
hopefully some evidence that the vaccine would in fact help a particular group of people for whom the FDA authorized use. And uh, the company or the manufacturer or the government, if the government is the owner, then has the freedom to go ahead and use it in that population. Because the emergency use authorization, just like an NDA or a regular approval for marketing, does have a patient population attached to it. It's not you have emergency use authorization to use this for anything you, you want to. That's not the case. Which demographic do you think might get access to a vaccine under an emergency use authorization? My guess is it would be symptomatic folks. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying that kind of facetiously because in a, in, a, in a therapeutic, that's what we could do in an emergency use authorization. If this is a vaccine. It's supposed to protect people. So what subset of people are you going to offer emergency use authorization? My guess is, and I, and I support this ethically, it's the, the highest risk folks and it's frontline workers folks who are going to be highly exposed because of their jobs, most likely in healthcare, fire departments, EMTs, paramedics, uh, nurses, it's first responders, right? And people who are working in hospitals and in healthcare and in clinics and in nursing homes. So I would hope that an emergency youth authorization for anything that's going to be done before we have full data, it's going to be done for those populations of folks then they've got really, really tough personal and institutional um, and corporate, in some case, decisions to make about whether to take that vaccine or not. Okay, Russia claims that it has made a vaccine. They're calling it Sputnik V. So far, Russia has not released any scientific data to back up their claim. Does the FDA have the ability to monitor or approve vaccines developed in another country? Sure it does. It could, it could, um, no. You say monitor. It does not necessarily have the ability to monitor. That depends on whether the country is, in fact, disclosing data honestly to the FDA or not. And in the case of Russia, I believe that's absolutely not the case. Um, in the case of some of the vaccines being worked on in China, I think with some of them, the companies and the government have been actually quite disclosive of data. Um, so the FDA does have the ability. There's nothing in that I know of, I'm not a complete expert, but nothing I know of in the statutes that in an emergency use authorization would not allow the FDA to take data from another country um, and approve for use in the United States in both emergency use authorization and an actual NDA for full marketing approval. But in that NDA process, that gets really complex because then you've got to look at the, all the manufacturing issues the, you know, the, the CMC or the, the, the chemistry manufacturing controls data about the, the, the manufacturer and production and distribution. So it's a lot more complex to do something like that for a full approval as opposed to an emergency use authorization. At this point in the trial research, do you have a sense of which company's vaccine approach is most likely to obtain FDA approval? kind of answered that in, in that I've said, look, you know, this is a little unusual. We've got to pay attention to cellular immunity as well as, as antibody response. Um, and we're learning. We're just learning about it. And we're learning about it at the time we're trying to rush to the development of a vaccine. And that's tough. And there are some companies that um, are very, very smart vaccine developers who know how to develop vaccines, who I think actually are being quite careful. And and saying, look, we're going to use kind of traditional methods of developing vaccines that have worked in the past, 
and we're going to pay attention to the different immune response, and we're going to do our job right, and we're going to be careful about how we do it. And I think that ultimately, you know, I credit those companies. And, oh, coincidentally, those companies who are being careful are taking some contributions from the federal government for setting up parallel manufacturing. At the same time, they're doing clinical trials, but they're not taking any money from the federal government for development of their vaccine. So I think, frankly, if you want to find out who the reputable companies are that are really likely to produce the best vaccines, look at the ones that aren't taking money from the federal government for the actual vaccine development. They may be taking money for parallel manufacturing, but they're not taking any money for development. And quickly, you'll see a couple companies rise to the top and you'll say, wait a minute, how come? Well, it's because the, look at the vaccines that have been approved in the United States in the last couple of decades. It's a really small list of companies that have gotten those vaccines approved. They know how to do it. They know what they're doing. They know how to do these clinical trials, how to interpret the data, um, how, to, how to make alterations to what they're doing. And they're not. They don't have their hand out to the federal government saying, hey, will you give us a bunch of money and we'll do this. They're saying, no, we know how to do it. We've, we've made the bet. This is a pandemic. We've got to respond to it. It's our ethical responsibility. We're not walking away. But we're going to apply our real expertise in the way we know how to do it. You guys aren't going to tell us how to do this. And you're also not going to rush us because we're going to do it in our own time because we want a vaccine that controls this pandemic. We don't want a vaccine that's politically motivated. And again, do we, you know, will the FDA be responsible? Well, I, you probably saw Dr. Marks this morning making an announcement that uh, if he gets political pressure to approve a vaccine before the, uh, he and his staff believe the data are adequate, he will resign. And at this point, he is the person uh, in the decision chair. He is the director of the FDA Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. That is, that is correct. And his boss, Steve Hahn, um, has not made as strong a pronouncement, and we shall see. Um, if we have a gutting of people at the FDA, if there's political pressure, which I am quite certain there will be in October, um, so we'll see if Dr. Marks and maybe Dr. Hahn will say no. Um, this is not, we, we don't have enough data. We are not going to um, approve something that we don't believe there's, that there's enough data for. Uh, uh, that's my gut feeling uh, of what's likely to occur. And then we've got a real serious problem. And we already have a serious problem because of all this being in the press and being politically motivated and all these pronouncements about, oh, yes, we'll have a vaccine soon. Because guess what? And folks have shown this. People are doing surveys. What percentage, you know, that 50% efficacy number, what percentage of people are now going to be willing to take the vaccine given all this noise? Uh, frankly, I think that the number's dropping every day. A recent Gallup poll says one in three would not take the vaccine, even if it were FDA approved and free. Right. And then with, you know, and just, you know, totally simple statistics doesn't apply here. But if you take the 50 percent rate, which you have to have to get to herd immunity, if, you know, assuming that some percentage of the population is already immune, then you, you know, you multiply. If you subtract the 15 percent by the, you know, 0.5 times 0.3. So now you got 35 percent efficacy. That's not enough to get you there. So, um, no, that's not the right math. It's, it's very brutal math, but it's kind of close. It's a close estimation. So um, if that's true, a 50% efficacy vaccine isn't going to work.
It's not, it's not going to control this pandemic. And that's dangerous. That's really dangerous for those two-thirds of the population that say, oh, we're cool. I'm going to take it and I'm not going to get the disease because guess what? That's not necessarily true. Who do you anticipate will own the patents to vaccines, the government or the private pharmaceutical companies? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the history of, of drugs that are originated or the original scientific work on the production or the, or the, or the invention of those drugs is done in publicly owned uh, institutions in, in the National Institutes of Health or, or other institutions. Um, and then those are licensed by uh, pharmaceutical companies or biotech companies or someone else. You know, the, the government very often does have a legal provision and a legal ability to pull back uh, that intellectual property and to pull back the rights or to, or to so-called to march in to the rights that, the, that, that have been given. Um, if, in fact, vaccine work has originated in publicly uh, you know, funded institutions like universities um, or the NIH labs um, and has been licensed to pharmaceutical companies, the same right exists. That's already there in the law. The United States can do that. And is that going to happen? with COVID therapies or vaccines, it's already being discussed. The government's being urged to walk in, to, to march into rights on, on some potential COVID therapeutics. Um, so, you know, will that happen with vaccines? Don't know. And again, if you look at things like uh, uh, Merck's vaccine development, that's not coming from, uh, it's coming from biotech companies, it's not coming from federal labs. That march in provision doesn't apply. I'm not sure exactly legally what would have to happen. I'm assuming there would have to be new law passed. Um, uh, maybe an executive order could do it for the federal government to march in or, or to, to, to go into patents which did not originate uh, with the government in the first place. I, do I think that's going to happen? No, I don't. Uh, I don't think either a Republican or a Democratic administration in this country is, is going to climb that hill. Um, and would it do any good? Would it really have anything to do with pricing? I don't know. I mean, pricing's already been discussed with a lot of these companies that you mentioned. And, and uh, you know, they're writing contracts uh, already for pricing of a vaccine. If, in fact, the government owned the intellectual property, would the price be less? Uh, not unless the government is saying we'll take full loss on the production cost and we'll charge nothing for the vaccine and we'll bear the entire cost. Then sure, I guess it could be cheaper. But the, that problem can be dealt with just in the government supporting the cost of, of the vaccine to the to the private company or to the to, to the manufacturer. Yes, you've been referring to a little-known and never-utilized provision of the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980, and as right. you say, perhaps the time for merchant rights has finally arrived. Um, let's, let's say a word about cost, just as you bring it up. The major pharma companies have represented that they will not be selling their vaccine at cost. The CARES Act, passed by Congress, contains provisions that a vaccine must be fully reimbursed under employer-based insurance coverage or self-insured coverage with no copay or deductible. How do you think the pricing of this vaccine will work? I think the pricing will work the way the pricing of drugs works, in that um, in the United States, companies don't have complete freedom to price a drug at anything they want. Everybody has to pay for it. In oncology, it's a little different. There's a complex series of laws that's out there that actually do allow companies to charge a lot of money for oncology therapeutics, and if they're FDA approved, 
they kind of have to get paid for um, by everybody except the VA, who is completely free to negotiate their own prices how they want. How will pricing work with vaccines? Uh, it's a dance, and a lot of the dance is occurring, and it's occurring in the press, in that companies are saying, oh, we'll charge 15 bucks per dose, or oh, we'll charge 20 bucks per dose, or oh, we'll charge 40 bucks for a course of therapy. Um, and you see what people say. How much protest is there? Um, do payers jump up and say, no way, no how? Uh, what does the government do? Can, you know, how much influence can your lobbyists exert on that, on, on that process? Um, and what's going on in terms of the government stepping in with emergency funding and saying, yeah, let's not worry a whole lot about five or 10 bucks per dose in the, in the vaccine price. We're going to pay it anyway. So I, I think it happens the way it always happens. It's this weird <laughs> negotiation process, a lot of which happens in, in, the, in the press and in the public eye and with lobbyists. And sooner or later, there will be a price settled upon, and there will be uh, who's going to pay for it uh, and who's going to pay how much for it is, is going to be settled. And I think we see press about it every day. So it's, compli it's complicated and kind of screwy, and, uh, and it's free market. <laughs> And my last question, Dr. Keltner, will a vaccine be the end of this crisis? Oh, no, not at all. Um, you know, this is very likely. Uh, the coronaviruses, uh, you know, are very likely. The original SARS um, and SARS-CoV-2 and the future uh, viruses that will come from the, the coronavirus and especially the beta coronavirus family, you know, they'll continue to, to to move from animal vectors into humans. There's no way we can absolutely stop that. We can certainly lower it if we, if we fund the research and we really look at animal reservoirs in an organized way like we were doing before the federal government cut off that funding um, and the Chinese were doing before the U.S. cut off its funding of those efforts. But so we'll get, I think this will help us, you know, we pray this will help us get way smarter about future pandemics. This particular pandemic and this particular virus, there's enough community spread. It's out there globally. It's going to be with us for probably many, many decades. You know, if we have good vaccines that are carefully developed and, and you know, we, we just say, look, you know, we're all in for a very rough ride for a year or two, but we want a really good vaccine. That's what we need. Um, you know, we don't want tens or hundreds of millions of people to die because we, we use a a vaccine that didn't really work and think we're immune, if we do it right, then yes, I think this could be reduced to the level of, of morbidity and mortality that we've reduced uh, serious influenza um, and that we've reduced some other diseases to. Uh, will it go away? No, it's not going to go away. And again, this virus interacts with the human immune system in a different way than other viruses. So does that mean that it's going to have a different course over years or decades than other viruses? Sure it does. Do we know exactly what that's going to be? No, of course we don't. You know, we're learning day by day, these spikes and surges and um, in the United States and globally, what's causing them? Where are they coming from? What's this virus doing? How is it transmitted? Droplets, six feet, 12 feet? Uh, uh, <laughs> we're doing, you know, we're doing the epidemiology in real time. So it's a tough answer, but I, I think my confidence level is very high. This virus will be with us for a very long time. Will we be able to reduce the impact of the um, uh, you know, of this pandemic? Yes, I 
we've done it before. We have very smart people working on it. We have a huge amount of effort and money uh, working on it. We have a lot of unfortunate human beings who, unfortunately, with their disease, have contributed to the science and are going to continue to contribute to the science. So we won't make it go away. And SARS, the original SARS, isn't gone. Polio, unfortunately, isn't gone. Smallpox, you know, isn't gone. Um, a lot of things that we get back, Ebola isn't gone. It's an issue of control and good uh, preventive medicine, which we pay very little attention to, and good public health and good science. With that, the pandemic will, in fact, be over. Thank you, Dr. Keltner, for an extremely informative and illuminating discussion. Thank you. This is Alan Brudner again. I just want to thank Jennifer Paul Cohen for leading those two informative discussions in our podcast. I also want to thank Dr. Colgrove and Dr. Keltner for devoting their time to this important discussion with us, as well as for their years of scholarship, effort, and devotion to public health and ethics, areas that are of central significance to all of our lives today. Finally, I want to thank everyone who listened to our podcast. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman, Alex Cardaris, and Alan Brudner.